This Week in Startups is brought to you by 8Sleep, the first bed engineered to improve your sleep through dynamic cooling and heating, detailed sleep tracking, and more. Get the sleep you deserve and supercharge your health and productivity at 8sleep.com twist. And Zendesk, the best customer experiences are built with Zendesk. Qualifying startups can join their startup program and get Zendesk products free for a full year. Visit Zendesk.com slash twist today to get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome to This Week in Startups. I'm your host, Jason Calacanis, an angel investor here in the Silicon Valley. We've invested in over 200 startups. A number of them have become quite large and famous and helped society solve major problems. When we work with startups, we hear the same questions over and over again about how to grow these startups. The term we use for growing your startup here in Silicon Valley is scale. And so we decided to create a 10-part series called Scaling Your Startup. This is episode five of that series. If you would like to see the deck that we'll be using during this podcast, you can go to thisweekinstartups.com, one word, thisweekinstartups.com slash scale, S-C-A-L-E, and there'll be a link to the deck. Uh, in our first four episodes, which ran just over an hour each, uh, quite comprehensive, we covered uh, in the first episode funding. In the second, we uh, tackled communications, or as we call it in the business, comms. In episode three, or lesson three, we did the business, we did business models. In four, we did team. And today, in our fifth episode, our fifth chapter, if you will, we will be doing, uh, oh no, in our fifth, we did sales. This is our sixth, and we're doing staying lean. So just to recap, we did funding in our first episode, comms in our second, business model in our third, team in our fourth, sales in our fifth, and this is our sixth, and it's about low burn culture. Low burn, as in burn rate, culture. And with me today, again, is Samantha August, who is the president of Launch, which is our 15-person investment company here in Silicon Valley, as well as managing director of the Launch Accelerator, uh, which we do seven times a year with seven companies, about 50 companies a year. Jason DeMont, welcome to the program. Again, Sam and Jason. Thank you. Thanks. You ready to go? Let's get right Let's into it. it. Let's not waste Let's any time. All right. Seven so, slides to get through again. Yep. We always do seven because that's people's short-term memory. Yep. So okay. uh, first one we're talking about is low burn culture. Um, and it's critical to have a low burn culture at, uh, at your company. And it's something we talk about with founders often. Um, in every monthly update, we ask our founders to actually send us how much they're spending every month. Um, and oftentimes, that's where the conversations we have with founders will start. Um, so Sam, let's start at a high level. Uh, why is having a low burn culture and keeping a long runway so important to founders? Yeah, so quite simply, um, you have optionality with a long runway. So instead of optimizing all of your financial decisions for survival or cash, you can optimize for the future and long-term strategy of your startup. Um, so, you know, for example, if you have this amazing hire and they tend they might be too expensive, you can actually um, you can make a decision, you know, with that employee to come up with some sort of salary that would make sense versus actually not being able to hire them at all. Um, also, you um, you would have the option to raise, but um, you wouldn't have to raise out of necessity. And raising out of necessity can often lead to bad deals or unfavorable terms, um, and even you know bad partners in some cases. Okay, so if you have a high burn rate, you would have if you lose a large amount of money every month, let's say a hundred thousand, uh, and you have uh, nine hundred thousand in the bank, that will last you nine months, which means you have to start fundraising after three or four months. 
if you were only spending 50000 a month, you would now extend your runway, the amount of time before you're out of capital for those people who are not in the industry. If you're only spending fifty k a month or losing fifty k a month, the burn, burn is what you lose every month, not what you spend. 50000 a month, you would now have 18 months of runway, which means you could put your head down and work for about 12 months before you even think about fundraising because you'd have six months. And DeMont, I think we advise people to allocate six months for their fundraising process. Is that correct? That is correct. And actually something we're going to hit on a little bit uh, Great. in a little bit. Okay. And just so we level set with everybody, there are three numbers you need to know. You have how much revenue you have in your company. Mm-hmm. Let's say you made $10,000 a month. Then you have what you spent. So you have revenue and you have spend. And then if you uh, subtract one of those numbers from the other, you have what you burned. Mm-hmm. So if you spent 50000 on your salaries and your marketing and your office space, and you made 10000 your burn would be? 40000 40000 We hear people say net burn, net. And burn is a, a term that we use in Silicon Valley because almost universally companies are losing money for the first couple of years while they uh, find product market fit and they start scaling their revenues. So in the real world, you just have your spend and your profit or loss. Here we call it burn because we expect there's a certain amount of cash in the bank and it will run out and you'll burn it until you hit zero. Okay. Yeah. Are, are you familiar with Paul Graham's default dead versus alive? No. Okay. So this is an essay. Paul he, Graham is the founder, uh, co-founder, co-founder of Y Combinator. Yeah. Um, so just one point uh, to make there, um, one additional point is how he likes to look at it is um, he likes to ask founders and examine um, do you do you make it to profitability on the money you have left, or um, essentially are you going to be default dead? Hmm. Um, and so that that's one thing that he uses in making decisions on whether default to invest in companies. Dead. Mm-hmm. So default dead means if with this amount of money we can't get to profitability. Right. So we are required to go back to market to raise money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the conversation is completely different um, because if the the default is default alive, um, then you can talk about you know new things you can work on. But if it's default dead, it's how can we save the company essentially. Right. Yeah. And most founders do not look at it with that level of um, extreme you know, drama. framing and drama, <laughs> but they should. Yeah. Like if we don't make it on this money, the business goes away. Mm-hmm. Whereas if we do make it to break even in this example of 50,000 a month and you have 10,000 in revenue and you're burning 40, you need only over 18 months, go from 10 to 50,000 to break even. And that is a wonderful place to be because then when you raise money, you're negotiating not against the clock. You you could take or leave the deal, as we mentioned right. earlier. This really impacts fundraising. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And the next point we just wanted to touch on is cheap uh, versus frugal. So, Demont, what um, what are your definitions for each? Sure. So, when talking with founders, um, what I ask founders to really think about is to focus on the upside and downside in whatever scenario they're thinking about. And so Jason will play a little game here. So let me out, lay out a scenario and I'll sure. ask you to answer what you think would be being cheap versus what would be being frugal. Hmm. This actually comes from one of our portfolio companies recently. So up until now, you as the founder um, have been doing all the marketing yourself. Got it. With the current team, you've got 10 months of runway. Okay. You really want to bring on a marketing hire. Sure. But doing so will reduce your runway to six months. Okay. That's dramatic. So in 40% the con- less runway. Correct. So in the context of being cheap versus frugal, how do you recommend a founder think through this scenario? Great question. So we don't know exactly how much money is in the bank, and we don't know how much this person costs. 
So, um, but it is dramatically lowering the runway. So let's assume they were burning 25K a month and this person was super expensive. They wanted $200,000, $300,000 a year. They were the CMO of Target. That's just not somebody you can hire at that point in your company. You're not going to get the CMO of Target, a public company, to come join your your startup or the VP of marketing who might get paid two or 300000 working there. So then you would either keep doing it yourself or you might hire them as an advisor mm. and say, may I give you 25 basis points in the company? That's equity over two years. Mm -hmm. You teach me how to do it. You come to the office once every two weeks. You're available by email. You help us with the plan or hire a consultant. But this is where you have to make a decision of under no circumstances would I, with that marketing person, cut four months of runway because that means you're immediately going to raise money. Now, if it was a salesperson and you knew that salesperson was going to be dropping directly to the bottom line, that's a little bit of a closer decision, right? So if the product was ready and you're already selling and you have one salesperson doing 50K a month and this is a better salesperson, you think, well, that salesperson joining, they're going to do at least that amount. They're going to hit the ground running. This is like the best SaaS software as a service enterprise salesperson ever, yeah, maybe we'll double the revenue and we'll get to break even. So you have to really consider that. That's a big lump of your runway being cut off. Mm -hmm. What did you think of that one? Or um, my feedback? Yeah, so it's something we're actually talking a little bit about, which is trading equity instead of salary. Sure. So per your advice, uh, do that for an advisor. The other, the other piece that I had thought about in this scenario was can you cut early? So yeah. if the marketing person is clearly not bringing ROI in the first 30 or 60 days, rather than taking that runway all the way down to the six month, can you risk a little bit at the beginning, yeah. see the results, and then make that, that decision? Yeah, maybe hire them as a contractor in the beginning yeah. so it's easy to- That sure. would be the best yep. way to do it, is just say, hey, can I play, instead of paying, let's say this person was more realistic, they wanted 10K a month, 120,000 a year, and you said, you know what? Can I pay you, we're, we're cash cheap right now. We, we've got a limited amount of runway. Can we just pay you $3,000 a month as a retainer? Um, and then when we raise our next round, then if we get the Series A with your help, then we can pay eight. And then when we get to the, or we get the seed round, we'll pay eight. And then when we get to the Series A, we'll pay 10. So yeah. you could actually have that negotiation. And if a person doesn't want to negotiate and they're totally mercenary and all they care about is cash comp, they shouldn't be working at any company with nine months of runway anyway. Mm. Why would they take that job? They're a big company person who likes security, likes to get a big paycheck, probably has a big expense account, probably wants to buy first class. <laughs> you know, they're going to burn through money like crazy. Yeah. yeah, I actually did have a situation like this. It was on the dev side. But um, what we did is we had a marketing associate, uh, or it was a dev associate, but in this case, it'd be a marketing associate. And we paid that person per hour. Like, so um, we had that person meet with our associate every week for an hour mm. and kind of help set, you know, just kind of train and it was kind of an advisor, but more of a manager, actually. Um, and it actually it worked really well. Yeah. hundred bucks an hour or something like that. Mm, yeah, yeah, exactly. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's why you don't have an in-house counsel and an attorney, <laughs> right? Like, right. if the attorney's making, you know, $300,000 working for Wilson Sonsini, they're not going to come work for you for a hundred. So that's why you outsource it. Eight Sleep is the first bed engineered to improve your sleep. This is a startup product that came out of Y Combinator that Keith Raboy and the team at Coastal Ventures invested in, and it gives you technology to make you more productive because you're going to sleep better. Obviously, they're circulating this water to make the temperature just perfect. It's called dynamic thermoregulation, and it's on each side of the bed. So your spouse or your friend or whoever you're sleeping with, 
you can get different temperatures and it slowly cools to wake you up nice and gently and you have premium foam with active grid technology this gives you pressure relieving support and a thermal alarm that's the thing that wakes you up by gradually cooling the bed this makes your heart rate speed up just ever so gently without a blaring alarm you don't need that it also has sleep fitness built in this means there are high-tech sensors that track your sleep and your sleep phases so you can learn how you're sleeping maybe you're drinking too much coffee at night maybe you're tossing and turning maybe there's a dog in the bed like for me you're going to need to study your sleep if you're going to make it better and i'm getting my bed tomorrow i am so excited you can control the bed temperature as well through alexa that's super cool and they also integrated google home this is a high-tech startup focused on sleep with a killer new product. I want you to try it right now, risk-free for 100 days. That's right, risk-free. You buy it, you try it for 100 days, you don't like it, you send it back, but you're going to love it. Go to 8sleep.com slash twist, 8-E-I-G-H-T, sleep.com slash twist, and supercharge your health and productivity starting today. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. So next one we're going to talk about is raising money Okay. Um, in the context of staying lean. Um, so when you're going into fundraise, uh, showing a low burn culture and having enough runway is going to be critical to gaining credibility from investors. Um, in fact, I was uh, one of our companies is currently raising around and they the founders asked me to talk with their one of potential investors, uh, and which is a very pretty common thing for us to do, do kind of a, a, a reference check for sure. new investors. And we had a great conversation about the founder. And then at the end, this potential investors asked me, they said, you know, it looks like the plan is to only raise eight months of runway with this current round. You know, what, what, what did I think of that? Um, and this was the part that they were most concerned about. Um, so kind of leading into that, Sam, how much runway do you think founders should ideally have after they complete their raise? Yeah, typically you'd have uh, between 18 and 24 months of runway, so a lot more than that. Um, you'd want 12 months for head down, heads down work, six months to um, raise the next round, and then a six-month buffer. Um, and ideally, the only thing the founder is doing at the time is raising money. Um, so, Demont, what challenges have you seen founders face um, You know, when they're when they're at the end of their, run, their runway and need to raise? Yeah. Um, so when a when a company gets too close to the end, uh, investors get scared to catch a falling knife. Um, so if you've got weeks of runway left, uh, trying to raise money from angels or VCs is likely to be futile. Um, and just the last thing an investor wants to do is put money in um, and then have you go out of business, you know, a couple of weeks. That's later. a bad feeling. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, um, and you know, raising money always takes longer than you think. Um, an investor goes out of town. There's a family emergency, um, and and so forth. So, in an extremely fast raise, what we have seen, where you corral the investors, you negotiate terms, you uh, sign the paperwork, and then actually having the money hit your bank uh, and wired, three months minimum. And so, this is why we kind of recommend um, this this plan. Um, Another scenario we, we recently had with a founder that was raising a large round. Uh, it was coming together well, but taking much longer than expected. Um, during kind of the end of putting that round together, the, the company actually ran out of money. And so they started asking smaller investors in that round to put the money in early so they could keep uh, paying payroll. A rolling uh, close, right. as they say in the business. Yep. And from a founder perspective... It makes perfect sense. They, you know, they're running out of money. The round's coming together, uh, but they're, but it's just not coming fast enough. 
from an investor standpoint, Jason, when you hear a founder that's trying to put that together, like what are what is going through your mind? Um, it feels a little chaotic. Feels like maybe the founder is not um, maybe as considered as they need to be, or as strategic, or as organized as they need to be about the fundraising. Now, bad things can happen. Like I've seen, um, I've seen investors have their investment firm blow up. I've seen investors say we're in and then send a term sheet and then back out without there being some material problem. I've seen investors say, oh, that fund got closed. We ran out of capital. We're going to raise our next fund or we're in the process of raising our fund. We can't raise right now. So there's all these things that can happen that are not the founder's fault. Um, But you should never, I mean, you should never be raising these six month, you know, 12 month bridges. They, They almost certainly are a bridge to nowhere in most cases. Um, and we've learned it a bunch of times ourselves, um, where we're putting bad money after good. Eighteen months is really the the magical number. Some VCs say twelve. I find that crazy. I think that's maybe they're even looking to have a little more of a short leash on the founder. Maybe be able to negotiate terms on the next round a little more aggressively. Uh, over twenty four months is kind of unnecessary because if you raise that amount of money, you diluted yourself. Well. Why not raise money after 24 months or 18 months when you have a higher valuation? So you're just not capital efficient is the way people would say that. Yeah. So let's get into some of our favorite tactics for staying lean. Um, So let's talk about how you can add people to the team without killing your burn. I know at my previous startup, one of our biggest mistakes in the early on the early end was hiring way too many employees in the beginning. Um, And we blew through our initial capital way too quickly. So that's something that I learned and I want to pass along to all other founders. Just don't hire too much in the beginning. Yeah. Um, Demont, what are some of your favorite ways to hire and fire people? So we mentioned this a little bit uh, a bit ago. So one of the main ones is trading equity for salary. Um, and this is for those that are familiar with working at an early stage company and understand how quickly they can grow and how quickly you can accumulate wealth by having equity in uh, these early stage companies. Usually this trade-off is something that they are excited to make. Um, and so we've seen a few different ways of, of doing this. We mentioned earlier the advisor way, trading equity for salary. Another way is with uh, full-time employees. So a common thing that we see uh, f- our founders make is offers to, let's say, an engineer where they can have an 80K salary and 3%. 100K salary and 2% or 120K salary and 1% of the company. And so you get to let the engineer choose choose their own adventure and choose which uh, which is the Yeah, if uh, they're best. coming off of a huge exit and they were at Uber mm-hmm. or Airbnb or mm-hmm. Google, they, they may have experienced wealth being created at a greater velocity by equity and be willing to take that risk. If they're got kids in private school, they may not want any equity, they may just want cash. Uh, And we see that as well. And it really depends on the region. There are some folks in Europe who are like, stock options, we don't care. Or South America, stock options, we don't care. Just pay us whatever you can give us. We've tried this where we've offered people offshore, like developers, equity, and they're just like, we don't want equity. We just want cash. Cash is king for us. We don't want to have that risk, which as the founder, you can then just take for yourself. An easy way to do this is to just Think about how much capital you have and think about typically you have more time than money. So um, let's just take a a silly example, but um, it comes up a lot, creating a logo or buying a domain name, right? So branding. You want to have the domain name com.com and it costs $100,000, but you've only got 
50000 in the bank, you can't obviously buy that. Well, you might be able to negotiate with a com.com person the option to rent it for 500 bucks a month for three years or $1,000 a month for three years and then have the option at the end to buy it for 100 so the thirty-six thousand in renting it for at a thousand dollars a month, maybe that, um, you know, goes away, and you still have, but you have the option to buy it a hundred at any time. So that's a great way to do it. And we saw Cush, one of our portfolio companies, do that. Or Mouth.com bought Mouth.com. Cush bought K-U-S-H.com. Com had already bought it. Um, and then you think about a logo. Uber Taxi was a horrible logo. It looked like it was made on like a really Microsoft like, Word. What's that? <laughs> Microsoft Word or Paint. It looked like Microsoft Paint. No, it, it looked like somebody had hacked it together who had two hours of design experience yeah. or three hours at the beginning. And, you know, then you they had 10 designers there refining the Uber logo. I don't know if you remember when they did their whole rebranding, but they mm-hmm. had one design team working on just the rebranding, one mm-hmm. design team working on the existing branding. And so... You might be spending $100,000 or $250,000 on branding when you're a Series B company. When you're a Series A, you might spend ten, And when you're a seed stage, you might spend zero. Or you might just do it yourself. Yeah. Uh, and it makes no difference, right? That, that logo is not going to make or break you. Or having – they had Uber Taxi or UberCab.com, and they eventually bought Uber.com. Mm-hmm. And in that example, they gave equity for it. Then when they realized the equity was going to become worth so much – they they gave them 100,000 in equity they wound up buy, giving them buying back the equity for 850,000 mm-hmm. that company um, i think it was Warner Music or one of the music companies owned uber.com that company got $850,000 in cash they had originally had 100 in equity they sold it back to uber for 850 it was a 50 million dollar position right now if they mm-hmm. had kept it for that time. Yeah. So it's a pretty crazy story that just got picked up. Yeah. And that's an example of a founder, like actually a savvy founder going, okay, we don't have cash. Let's just buy it for equity. Mm-hmm. Oh, the equity's becoming worth so much. Let's try to buy that equity yeah. back from, you know, investors or founders. And yeah. so that's the opposite side of it. And just think about your own time. You probably, when you're starting your company, you have a lot of cycles, you have a lot of time, but you don't have a lot of money. You're, you're time rich, cash poor, uh, or you might be time poor and cash poor. But in that case, you just don't have the luxury of spending fifty thousand on a logo or ten thousand. It's just stupid. You, you you would be better putting that towards buying ads mm-hmm. or hiring a developer or finishing your product. Yep. Yeah. Or on that note, actually, one uh, one point we don't have here in the deck, but um, you know, it, instead of doing that, even you could just uh, outsource it. And you know, I know we talked about this yeah. in our team conversation, but um, outsourcing to someone who may you know only be fifteen to twenty dollars an hour um, for sure. You know, in, in Serbia or whatever. We do have that. We have a Serbian designer right now. who's fifteen or twenty bucks an hour doing a great job. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, so let's talk about uh, founder salaries in terms of hiring yeah. hacks. Um, I'm curious, what do you recommend in kind of the early stage? in terms of a founder salary? Typically, founders take nothing in the first year or what's called a draw. A draw means just a small amount of capital to pay for their rent. Um, In the case of Y Combinator, they called it ramen money. Um, I think they would give a two-founder team 16K and a three-founder team 24K, 8K each was the idea. And each of the three founders would be building, they each get 8K, and that would cover them for the four months of the program, 2K a month each or 3K a month each, mm-hmm. whatever you, however you think about it. And so after you raise your seed round, sometimes founders will take 5 to 10K a month uh, in a draw or a salary. And if you saw any founder wanting to take 250 or something like that, it would be a massive red flag to most people. Now, when you get to Series B, if the founders 
have a big nut to you know carry here in the, the Silicon Valley where things are very expensive, you might actually see a 200K salary, but not often, very rare. Um, and what you would see more often is the founder is maybe the 10th, 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th most highly compensated person in the startup with the salespeople and developers being far ahead of them. But those people would have 1% or a quarter percent of the company, and the founders might have 20, 30, 40% each. You already know Zendesk is the best customer support system in the world. Everybody knows that. What you may not know is they have a suite of products. This includes their knowledge base, live chat, the call center, and an integrated customer support center. This means everybody in your company knows what's going on and every customer is getting their problem solved instantly, if not quicker. And your agents are going to become bionic. Maybe they're 10%, 20%, 30% more efficient. Let's say you make them 30% more efficient. That means you don't have to add a third one. The first two are going to get the job done. That's the power of software. That is SaaS, software as a service. They keep making it better. They keep making it better. Here they are 10 years later, Zendesk is crushing it, and they have an offer for you that is ridiculous. I have to get to the offer right now. Qualifying startups, those are people with a Series B or less, under 100 employees, can join the startup program and get Zendesk for free for a full year. I'm not kidding. For free for a full year. Go to Zendesk.com slash twist, Zendesk.com slash twist. And if you've got under 100 employees and you're Series B or below, you're going to get it for free for a year. Why would they do that? Well, they know. Maybe people in these early stage companies, they say, oh, you know what? I don't want to have the expense of Zendesk. Maybe it's too expensive. Maybe we can't afford it. Maybe we need to save our money. They don't want you to have to think about price. They want to help you succeed. If they help you, you will eventually become a customer and they're willing to wait for a year too. What other company does that? Who gives you a car? Does Uber get let you drive for free for a year? Does Tesla give you a Model 3 for a year? No, but Zendesk does. So go ahead and go to Zendesk.com slash twist and get your free year. It is amazing. It's a great product. We use it. We love it. And uh, I am just so thankful that they did this tremendous offer for my listeners. Zendesk.com slash twist. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. All right. So uh, one thing we found is no matter how experienced you are as a leader or a founder, you're going to make bad hiring decisions. Um, so Demont, what, what advice would you give or do you give founders in the accelerator around, um, around hiring and firing? Sure. Um, so the most important thing that I've come to realize the more I've hired and fired is that hiring is imperfect. And the sooner that you accept that fact, uh, the the easier you can get with hiring and firing uh, folks. Um, so rather than trying to hit 100% of your hires, accepting the fact that you're going to hit 70%, maybe even 80% is, is okay. But then you also need to realize that you're going to fire one out of every four people um, that you hire. And so the tactically, the way that I like to recommend founders do this is coming up with a 30, 60, and 90-day plan with their new hires together and then put on the calendar at those at those points to review those those plans. And then after each meeting, ask yourself, did they hit the plan? And if they didn't hit the plan, did you make a mistake by hiring this person? And know that it's okay if, uh, if there was a, a mistake made. Yeah, mistake can be made on both sides too, right? Like sure. somebody yeah. could take a job they shouldn't have taken. Mm -hmm. They're not qualified for, or the culture's not a match, or they don't want to commute. I mean, I've had people quit jobs because they they took the job and they had an hour and a half commute and they thought it was going to be sustainable. And they're yeah. like, I'm spending three hours a day in a car. I'm like, didn't you know that when you took yeah, the job? It happens a lot. It's, it happens a lot. Yeah. People are just like, I don't like this commute. Right. <laughs> 
So you, you can't take it personal. Yeah. And um, and then I know I mentioned this earlier, but uh, another option is to to kind of protect yourself is to set it up as a contract in the beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, set some sort of 30-day, 60-day yeah. contract. Um, and and it's not a hiring in the United States, and you should have a good HR company or PEO that you're working with so you understand how to do this properly. Hiring, at least in America at this time, is, uh, you know, double opt-in. Each person, it's at will, I think is the term that most people use. It's okay if it doesn't work out. You can let go of anybody at any time for any reason. Um, you do want to make sure that you're fair about that. You don't want to be flying off the handle and just firing people willy-nilly. Um, but people can leave at any time, and you can let people go at any time. That's one of the great um, aspects to American employment law is that nobody's trapped, and that makes it a healthy healthy for everybody else. And if there's, if there's any doubt, there's no doubt is what... Yeah. My friends and I like to say, like, when you have a doubt about a person, I've almost never seen somebody make a turnaround. I can't remember one time yeah, a real. person made a turnaround where people were like, the management team's like, this person's not working out. Yeah. I'm like, let's put them on a performance improvement plan, and all of a sudden it works. Yeah. It, almost universally, the performance improvement plan is just like a formality. We talked about it in the yeah, team episode, yeah, but did. it's it's kind of hysterical because you, you do this performance improvement plan, and it's almost like... You just know you're breaking up yeah. and it's not going to improve. And and one thing, um, I guess one thing that comes to mind there is the only time I've seen it actually work is if that employee had something per- like, you know, some sort of personal issue going on at home that ah. we might not have known about. Maybe they're distracted. Yeah, and they're just and... very distracted. But that's the literally the only time, you know, we've yeah. ever had anyone, um, you know, kind of make a, a turnaround from that. But there are some early warning signs that you can look out for. Um, so a couple that I have listed here. Um, so if you're, if you're, you know, having your one-on-ones and you're giving very clear instructions to a team member about, okay, you know, this is what your role is. This is what you can do to improve. And they're just not doing it. Mm-hmm. Even, even in the very beginning, you know, you might want to just dismiss it and think, oh, well, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure they'll, they'll pick it up. You know, they, they interviewed really well. They did it at their previous company. Maybe they'll turn it around. It, it rarely happens. Um, Secondly, if they if they don't get along with fellow team members, that can be a huge red flag. So, you know, sometimes you'll think in the beginning, oh, well, maybe, um, you know, maybe they'll, you know, get to know the team and it'll start to work out a little bit better. And they'll, you know, maybe if they hang out with them a little bit longer, um, they'll all just start to get along. But oftentimes that that isn't the case. Um, thirdly, if they, you know, lack motivation and you see them playing games on their phone or laptop, or they don't tend to have a sense of urgency when completing projects, that's also a red flag. Um, and that's not one that I would have thought was obvious in the beginning, but, um, you know, now when I, when I see an employee that, you know, when, if I give them a task, you know, as the president of the company and they're not prioritizing that, that, that's something that, you know, hasn't, yeah, it's, it's weird. It doesn't, you know, um, I I used to want to dismiss it, but now that is a red flag for me. Yeah. People at a startup should understand that the velocity of the work and taking ownership is absolutely critical mm-hmm. because back to what we talked about earlier and the low burn culture, you have a short runway. You have a runway. This is not a permanent yeah. you know, um, endeavor. We don't know if this company is going to be here in 18 months. Therefore, you have to hit the notes. And I did this recently with Inside.com. I just told when I took over the editorial group and I said to everybody, like, listen, here's how we're going to run it. I, I always think it's important to tell people the why. Mm-hmm. And I said, if these newsletters are not growing, then we need to find another writer for them. If you don't know how to grow a newsletter, we should be able to work with you to help you figure that out. But at the end of the day, if the newsletter is high quality, it's going to grow. If it's not high quality, it's not going to grow. 
Therefore, if it's not growing, we need to have somebody else run mm -hmm. the newsletter. And it really is that simple. Um, it's very rare that a job can be defined that simply. I think sales, you have a very easy one. Either they sold yeah. or they didn't. Developers, they can kind of hide a little bit, or designers, or operators. So you really have to, I think, look at the projects they're working on and the impact they're having. I like outcomes too. You know, like with working with Demand, I just said, let's get to 50 investments this year. That's our stretch goal, and we'll hit 47, 42, who knows? But we really don't need to even have a discussion beyond that. Either we hit it or we don't. It's pretty clear uh, scoreboard. Pretty clear scoreboard. And mm -hmm. I think that's one of the challenges is that a lot of immature managers don't know how to like state the goals or mm -hmm. they may not know. So then they're optimizing for how many hours are you at the office or how, I don't know, how seemingly hardworking you are or the popularity contest. These are not what matters. What matters is the output. What is the outcome? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is where our end of days are really important. Yeah, it's but one way to monitor um, and have people sort of take ownership. We do EOD reports um, where people just say, these are the top couple of things I got done today and they tell their teammates. Other people use Asana or mm -hmm. other project management tools. Some people use Kanban boards. Some people in developers use a point system. Sales is super easy because you have how many meetings did you do? How many emails did you do? Right. All these dashboards yeah. uh, but setting goals is super important all right let's next talk about uh, ways to increase pr productivity of yours uh, of you and the people that you already have um, so Sam I know this is one of your favorite topics uh, what are some of your favorite hacks for non-developers to augment their jobs yeah, so um, my first tip here would be to utilize existing technologies. Uh, I've made the mistake plenty of times in the past where, um, you know, I'll be I'll be working on a project and uh, we'll be meeting as a team and I task the developers, okay, let's go ahead and just build this. Let's scope it out, see what this is, um, and let's build it. Uh, now I know way better and my first, uh, the first thing I do is to actually research um, you know, online to see if anything already exists that we so that we you know don't rebuild something that's already there. So, for example, there are a ton of open APIs out there. Um, you know, as an example, Google Maps has an API, so you never would need to build you know some sort of like address verification system. Essentially, you can always connect to Google Maps. But that may be something that yeah. you would start to build if you didn't know that. Yeah, and um, ten years ago. You had to build that. Right, right. Uh, and now you don't. Yeah, and so I'd recommend just take a look at, you know, sites like Product Hunt or Hacker News. Just, you know, keep an eye on on sites like that. I mean, I, I look at Product Hunt probably every other day, which is yeah. kind of embarrassing to admit, but, um, you You're know, You're a product I, junkie. It's cool. I, I really am, yeah. You have an addiction um, to efficiency in products. But when you think about it, like, um, Zapier, If This Then That, create this really yeah. great framework across these things. Google's app suite is really good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and not everything needs a developer, as we're saying here in the second bullet point. Developers are a finite and expensive resource. Mm -hmm. And they should be working on the key things that matter. Uh, I, I like to take the like sort of 10 or 20 hour rule. If something's taking 10 or 20 hours a month, I start to think as a founder, who can I give this to or how can we automate it? Mm -hmm. Right. Because if you think about like us inviting people to the accelerator, we figured out a way to automate inviting of the investors uh, where they pick what week they want to do. And we can send one email to 100 and fill it up with one email using email sequencing software, as an example. But that's something we used to do manual. So I think that's a good indication. If you see yourself doing some repetitive task, I think it's probably, what, 10, 20 hours a month of the same task you should start thinking yeah. about. And we have some hacks that we do like snippets so in mm -hmm. superhuman you can hit i think it's command uh semicolon 
Yep, semicolon. Yep. Uh, yep. And you hit that, and it gives you a little, a bunch of snippets. And on my iPhone, I have those snippets as well, um, which are called text expanding, I guess, or text replacements. And you just do like you know three characters or whatever. Or we have questions. Demont and I often ask people, so we just hit command shift one and boom, all of a sudden we have our suite of questions we like to ask a founder and then you can edit those down. So if you have eight questions you like to ask people to qualify them, maybe you take out two or three because they don't apply and now you're starting on second base. So all those little person personal productivity hacks work. Yeah. And, um, you know, outside of just the personal ones, just with your team, um, you know, with products like Balsamic and Envision, I mean, um, you know, both of those you can easily utilize without a developer. And yeah. then from there, um, there are all these co code free technologies out there like, you know, I love Webflow mm. um, or Bubble. Those are two very popular ones. You can you can um, very easily create a light version of your app um, before even hiring a dev team. Yeah, um, that's very common now. And, um, you know, a couple other examples of great technologies to use um, Zapier, everyone knows about. And then we use Typeform a lot. So we've, you know, we haven't had to build out yep. our own, you know, forms or anything. Um, and and also one thing that I'm noticing more and more is it's very common now to have your your front end built through a tool like Squarespace or Webflow and then have your devs separately. Like if you do need something a little bit more complex, have them build out something um, kind of on the back end and then you can connect the two. Hmm. But that way you can have your, you know, your marketing team or your, you know, front end team, whatever you want to call them. Operations. Um, they, they, can, they can make any changes they need to in Webflow or Squarespace. And then the developers can stick to the heavy hitting stuff that, you know, that they're being paid, you know, a, a lot of a money, lot of to money build. for. <laughs> and that um, doesn't exist in the world. Like if it exists right. in the world, why are you rebuilding it? Right, exactly. Like yeah. people used to build their own websites and then it was like, well, Squarespace exists for 20 bucks or WordPress or any number of... Uh, shopping, I guess, the Shopify's and the Magento's of mm -hmm. the world. Like, there's a lot of these, and Squarespace does shopping. Yeah, now. and uh, Webflow just released e-commerce a couple months ago too. So it's like almost like every platform just added e-commerce yeah. as a checkbox. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that was something where you used to have to spend a million dollars to build a, a e-commerce right. site. Now you're just like, boop, it's up yeah. and running. Yeah. So um, oftentimes founders start building and then, but don't uh, t take a step back and ask, you know, wait, should we even build this? So kind of going along the same thing here. Um, Demont, what are some ways that you've seen founders make decisions uh, to hack for a longer runway? Sure. Um, so the methodology that we talk a lot about here is uh, the lean startup methodology. So uh, the first question, you know, in finding kind of the the way to validate your ideas and make and whether you should make that decision to go forward is think about you know do you want in a in an example should a customer will a customer upgrade from free to paid um, will they pay for a certain feature and so rather than you know building all of that out what is the fastest cheapest way that you can validate that and so the most common thing uh, people build is a minimum viable product or MVP uh, as most people uh, refer to it. And oftentimes it's just a landing page where you can explain that feature, see if people click add it to the cart or go even a step backwards and uh, do marketing for that for that particular product or feature. Run AdWords, run Facebook, see if you get people to click, then to a landing page. And then you can actually make a decision with data rather than just making the, making the decision. Um, so for you, Jason, uh, the MVP strategy has a share of people uh, that speak out against it. Yeah. Um, curious if you, what, what mistakes have you seen founders make, you know, when trying to build an MVP or have you seen uh, I think founders the, make mistakes? Yeah, it, it shouldn't be crummy uh, or unrefined. Consumers are pretty sophisticated. Mm -hmm. So if something is bad, it does reflect badly on the company. An example would be Jamie Siminoff created something called DoorBot. 
before Ring, and it didn't work very well because it was kind of kludgy. He was under-resourced at the time, and he had to kind of kill that brand mm. and create a new brand because mm. the reviews were so bad <laughs> yeah. for his doorbell Kickstarter or Indiegogo, whatever he did. So MVP doesn't mean make a schlocky product, so people need to keep that in mind. I think what's good about the MVP process and the lean startup methodology is what is the laziest way? If you, I say it that way because I want to kind of trigger people a little bit. What's the laziest way for you to get an answer to the question you're trying to, to, to resolve? For the problem you're trying to resolve, what's the laziest, easiest way for you to get an answer? Mm-hmm. Will people spend $3,000 on this? Well, making a landing page and then sending 1,000 people to it and seeing if they click buy now and it could say, oh, yeah, the product's coming on this day. Put your email in if you want to be invited to the beta. You just see how many you convert and what value proposition works. So um, it, it is a real innovation. Too many times we'll see somebody build something in a vacuum um, for a year or two and never get it out. And that's the problem is you could overbuild things. Mm-hmm. And overbuilding is a, is a really yeah. bad idea. Building something elegant and simple and then adding to it is really the name of the game. I find people are on what I call the feature death march. They think the next feature is the one that is going to make everything get resolved. And that's almost never the case. It's usually that people use a product for two or three features and that's it. And so all of this extra work adding and bolting on features doesn't result in um, scaling the startup and getting to revenue and break even and profitability. Yeah, and one thing we kind of touched on uh, during our sales talk was um, upselling and having your salespeople kind of pitch it to clients mm-hmm. first, or or if you know see if clients are asking for it, sure. and then you know build it at that point. Well, remember I did that here. We had inside, I we created an event called Inside AI Live, and I said, let me. The way I decided if we would do a one-day inside event, I was like, I wonder if anybody would go to this if we try to get 50 people to buy tickets or whatever. So the first thing I did was I went to a venture firm, Rob Mays, and said, Rob, would you put up 10K to do this with me? And he said, yeah. I was like, okay, well, that's good. And then I, he said, I think IBM will. I said, okay, let me ask IBM. And IBM said, we will sponsor it because we want to get Watson and these other things out. Okay, so now we had the entire cost of the event covered with two conversations. So we were in the black already. Mm-hmm. We weren't in the red. So we're starting profitable. Yep. Then um, we did, I did another one. We had, we wanted to, I wanted to try selling out inside.com slash sales, which is a newsletter for salespeople. And so I said, huh, there's like 30 companies that are making a lot of money building sales tools. And we use them, Pipedrive, Outreach, Salesforce, et cetera. So I went to the three or four person sales team. I said, write up a one pager, just a one pager. We made a one pager, uh, like a sales document, a PDF. And in 48 hours, it was sold for the year for $26,000. And I said, let's sell it for less than it's worth. It's probably worth a hundred. Just tell people $500 a week they have to buy for the year. And if they buy it, they get a hundred percent share of voice. They've now done that with two newsletters, Inside Compliance and Inside Sales, where we sold out the newsletter for the first year. So that's the way my brain tends to work with these things. And I did that with Launch Festival Sydney, which we did last year and we're doing again this year in 2019. A bunch of countries told us they wanted to uh, bring Launch Festival there. And I said, 
sure, if you want to do that, the events cost, you know, 300000 to sort of fire up if you want to give 1,500 people free tickets. Um, if you underwrite the basic cost of the event, then we'll bring it to your country. So that's another way of like minimal viable product. They just wrote, I wrote a two or three page document, sent it to them, and they said yes, and they bid. So it's incredible, right? Mm -hmm. You. You don't have to, we didn't have to bring the conference there, rent a space, put out 300,000 and then wonder if somebody would sponsor it. You could actually pre-sell it. So I love pre-selling stuff to see if people will buy it or not. Yeah. If people make a commitment in advance, then you probably have a strong product market fit or a strong brand. You have something that people really want. So inside.com sales, a newsletter dedicated to salespeople is something that apparently Outreach, which bought it, and other people were really bummed out when they found out Outreach bought it for the year. If if there hadn't been product market fit for that, nobody would take the flyer of paying in advance for it. That's like the ultimate uh, level of product market fit is the product doesn't exist, but I'm going to describe to you a product. Would you pay for it? And give me the money now for the entire year. It'd be like, I'm going to build. And sometimes you see this happen in real estate. People show the design of a new building. You know, here in San Francisco, here's this new, really well-designed building, or here's a building in Miami, and some number of people will buy an apartment there two years or three years before it's available because they did such a good job with the sales materials and the location is so good. Tesla as well. Uh, Tesla did it yeah. as well, right. They were like, hey, mm -hmm. the Model Three's coming. Here's the prototype. Yeah. You can drive it. Put down $500 <clears throat> or $5,000. And I did that three times. Yep. So there's a... When I hear founders complain like, oh, I just need all this money to get the product to market and or they're pushing out the making money mm -hmm. issue, boy, is that a mistake. And we talked about that in the business model episode, I think, a whole bunch. Another thing to do is if you've run out of runway, I was able to save one or two of the companies I've worked on in my life by getting somebody to hire our team to do custom work for them sure. while doing other work. Mm -hmm. And we have a company that we have in our portfolio that does seminars on executive coaching, mm -hmm. which is not a repeatable business really. It's kind of a one-off yeah. manual business, but they also sell a service for online coaching. Yep. And I think right now it's 50-50 is their mm -hmm. revenue between the two products. And most people would say, oh, that doesn't scale, whatever. It's like, okay, who cares? It's keeping the lights on, right? So yeah. keep the lights on is the name of the game. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you have to do things to keep the lights on. Yep. Yeah. Sam, I know you, there were some other common money pits that you wanted to, to mention as well. What are some other things founders need to make sure to avoid? Yeah, just some simple ones that come to mind. Um, so, you know, not not leasing an office in the very beginning. So I know, um, yeah, I know <laughs> a couple of the, that's one of the first decisions that a founder will make. Like, oh, I'm starting a business. Let's yeah. get an office yeah. space. <laughs> Another thing would be just like business cards and swag, all that kind of stuff. Like yeah. if that's the first thing the founder does, that's, that's a really bad sign. kind of weird. Yeah. 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 Unless yeah. they're a rich founder and they're like, hey, I'm so baller. I can just, <laughs> yeah. I can make my logo, you know. Yeah. Like Steve Jobs spent I think it might have been a half million dollars on the next logo, but he was Steve Jobs and he had created Apple. Yeah. He's like, I want to make a big deal out of my next company. Yeah. Next. And he made this incredible logo because he had done the 1984 commercial and mm -hmm. he, he had the resources to do it. It's yeah. like, that's a place of privilege. Another way to do it is to negotiate with your lawyers. So most of the law firms here in Silicon Valley will take you on on contingency. Mm -hmm. If you raise money, then they'll charge you 10K yep. or they'll do a flat rate. So Scott Walker advertises on the podcast for a couple of years since almost the beginning and he does flat rate pricing. So you can negotiate that mm -hmm. um, and you can use a co-working space or you can work out of a Starbucks. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are there there are hotel lobbies and cafes where people tend to start their companies. If you are starting your company, you have zero dollars, 
You don't need to give WeWork 2000 a month. You can literally go work at a Starbucks with your yeah. developers, and yeah. people do that. And if they chase you out of one Starbucks, you literally <laughs> go two blocks to the next one for three yeah. hours, yep. and you can move three times. Yeah. That's what I used to do. Weblogs, yeah. Inc., I worked out of a Starbucks. I had my two-bedroom apartment, mm -hmm. which was maybe a 1,000 square feet, and then I would go down to Starbucks because I didn't want- To the want, office. And that was my office, yeah. and I would just sit there, outside, and I'd sit outside in Santa Monica and just work, take calls. Yeah. We worked out of the Whole Foods on 4th. They have Wi-Fi. It times out every two hours, but you just have to sign back in. And you're good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are, there are trade-offs. Yeah. You may eat too many scones. <laughs> yeah. That was my problem. I would just be like, well, these maple scones well, are incredible. that was in a tap room, so. Yeah, well, that's another. Yeah. 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 Great. So, when ish doesn't go well. When ish doesn't go well, yeah. So um, being a founder is thrilling, but also often terrifying. Um, so, you know, one day you're experiencing a rush of customers from a PR push or something like that, and then the next you're struggling to meet payroll due to a major customer paying late. Um, pretty much every new founder deals with cash flow issues at some point. Um, so, Demont, when burn is getting low, what are some helpful things to remind founders? Yeah. Um, so the the first thing that we always recommend founders do is examine every single cost that they have and don't do it by yourself. Uh, ask your investor, ask a founder friend, ask somebody else to also help you uh, help you do this. Um, it seems obvious and something that hopefully you're constantly doing, but the act of actually doing it with somebody else really helps you question uh, assumptions that you're making. You know, oftentimes you're too close to to a problem. And so uh, another uh, story from our portfolio, we had a founder recently that was burning, they felt potentially a little too much and actually asked me, you know, does the burn seem unreasonable? And I said, well, let's kind of go through the different buckets uh, that you're spending money on. So they were uh, lining them all out. And one of them was uh, a a $3,000 a month for their lawyer, a, the, a retainer. To the founder, it's they need a lawyer. So yeah, that's how this lawyer happens to charge. So sure, they'll, they're paying their lawyer $3,000 a month. But to an investor, we often know that uh, lawyers will pay as uh, you will pay as you go, and oftentimes even defer fees at times. Sure. And so paying three thousand dollars a month when burn is coming low does uh, does makes not, no sense. Does not make sense. I've never heard of that before. That's crazy. Yeah, retainer. It's, I mean, it's, it's every month paying three thousand yeah, dollars a month. I've never seen that. Wow. Oh, yeah. No, I've I've seen it a, yeah. a few times. It, yeah. It, the when you have money, it's nice to not have to think. Do should I send this to my to my lawyer? It's oh, I have a question. I'll send it to my lawyer. Oh, these docs need to review. I send it to my lawyer because they know they've got you know them on retainer, so they don't need to worry about getting nickel and dimed. And mm. you know, do you do you send you know do you actually have to send it to the lawyer? The lawyer actually wants you to send them everything so that they can get ahead of issues. Yeah, um, kind of similar with your health. They want a preventative rather yeah. than um, once once you're actually sick. Um, so, Jason, question for you. When a founder comes to you and says they're out of money in six weeks and, and what should they do? How do you how do you coach them through that situation? Yeah, so they're not the first thing to do um, would they shouldn't get themselves to that situation, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so if they were sending monthly updates, which we require of our startups contractually, it's not like we're suing anybody for not sending their updates, but we do have it in a contract to make it even more serious for folks. You should have, as an investor, seen they were at seven months, six months, five months of runway, and it shouldn't get down to six weeks. So hopefully there would have been a discussion about, are we, are we going to do a round with outside investors? Are we going to try to do a bridge with internal investors? Who's going to lead the round? Who's going to price it? What are the terms? But let's assume none of that happened and the founder just avoided you and then came at six weeks. I would say, well, you need to find an outside investor to validate this because we're not going to just do the bridge. 
Um, and I would look at how close they are to break even. Now, if they're within 5K of breaking even, let's say they're spending 60K a month and they're making 55, well, then it's pretty obvious you're going to lay somebody off. So you have 10 people in the company. Great. Pick two and they're done. And now you're profitable, right? So that would be the first thing is how close to profitability sure. are you? Yep. Now, let's assume they're not even anywhere close. They have 10K a month in revenue and they're spending 60K. So there's a 50K deficit and they got six weeks left. Oh, boy, that's that's a kind of scary moment. Um, they need to go. They probably would have to cut half the salaries or put everybody on half pay and say we're going to defer salaries. This is like hard medicine time. Mm -hmm. They could literally go to their entire team and say the three co-founders are taking no money until we raise. And then we're asking the other seven people in the company if they would defer half their salaries, um, which will then get us to, you know, three times that, 18 weeks of runway, three months, four months of runway. Um, so it's sort of like if you're stranded on a boat, you count how many provisions you have before cannibalism starts. <laughs> like you're like, okay, we've got two Snickers bars and a <laughs> loaf of bread. Okay, here's how many calories we're each gonna try to get by with 600 calories a month. Yeah. Um, and that's that's what you have to do. I mean, you may have to throw somebody off the boat. You know, like it's really a dark, dark situation. Um, or can you get a customer to do custom work and maybe get them to spend two hundred fifty with you or pay you in advance? So there is that possibility. So you can either increase revenue, cut costs, or get more money in the door from an investor. And probably cutting costs is the easiest. That's totally in your control. It's painful, but in your control. Raising your prices, it's in your control, but you have to wait to see if the person allows you to do it. Um, and raising more money, you can try. So you're going to have to try all of these things. And then you're probably also going to have to think about, well, maybe I have to sell the company. Um, but a sales process usually takes more than six weeks. Yeah. So if you're down to six weeks, you're probably going to fail. Um, is, yeah. And that is the the challenging part for a lot of founders and why we really tell them, do not get yourself to that point. Or if you're getting to six months, you should have a wrap-up plan. You should be like, okay... I'm going to lay everybody off and I'm going to give everybody two weeks severance. I'll have a month, I'll have 30,000 in my bank account to sell the asset. It'll be a one person company for the next six months as I try to sell the asset. Mm -hmm. You should be ready for a wind down at that point yeah. in my mind. Yeah, I agree. And with um with six weeks, I um because I feel like this this happens frequently with founders. But um if if you're not ready to give up, another thing you can do is look to um, services like Cabbage. I know we mm -hmm. had uh, Rob on the podcast, but basically um they'll wire you money within three days as long as you know mm -hmm. your personal credit checks out. Um and that that actually saved us when we had a really big client miss a payment. These are factoring type companies, people mm -hmm. who will give you money against revenues. Correct. Yeah. And against so invoices, they're yeah. not loan sharks. They're basing it on, although some people may feel they're predatory, they're not necessarily predatory. They may have high interest rates, mm -hmm. 30, 40% annualized, 50% yeah. annualized. Um, there, there were some very, very sketchy uh, services yeah. out there. But the reason that we we went with Cabbage is because they were the, they actually, they seemed like this light at the end of the tunnel and it yeah. was not sketchy at all. So everything was, you know, upfront. It wasn't yeah. like a 10 page document. And to document be clear, we this had is the your review. previous company, not launch. Previous company, <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Launch is doing just fine. <laughs> um, yes, that's a but important clarification. 
I've seen some of them where they say we'll give you a hundred thousand against yeah. your revenue, yeah. and then you give us back a hundred six yeah. or a hundred ten, but they don't say over what period of time. Right. And then when I talked to some of the founders, it was three months. So then that means you're really timesing it by over four yeah. x because and it's you, compounding. Yeah, and you're um, and a lot of the documents uh, that we reviewed when we were going through this process, it would. Basically, you would have to give them direct access to your bank account, and they had yes. control over it. Huh. Um, or in one case, you had to create I'm, – I'm very familiar with all these different options. Um, in one case, you you would have had to create a new bank account that they were actually the the sole owners of hmm. and deposit all – and all of your revenue had to be deposited into that bank account. Yeah, it was – we obviously didn't go with any of these options. So this yeah. is why Cabbage was so amazing. No, we have people approaching folks in our portfolio who spend, you know – a hundred thousand a month on Instagram ads and a hundred thousand on Google ads, saying, "Hey, we'll give you four hundred thousand, so you can double your mm -hmm. spend for the next two months. Yeah. You just because you've got a predictable, just give us, you know, six percent back, mm -hmm. and it's like six percent in two months, which is times six, thirty six percent right. plus, because it's, yeah. you know, would be compounding. So it's like you're getting more towards forty, fifty percent." interest. And yeah, I think with Cabbage, uh, I'll, we just had to connect our Stripe account so they could see our revenue. And, yeah, they're basically looking yeah. at other signals to make a, a loan decision. Mm -hmm. And small business loans don't really exist anymore. They don't. Um, That's why it was such a challenge. Yeah. yeah. But these new ones is a whole new crop of what people say factoring, just basically against your receivables or against predictable revenue. Mm -hmm. So if you're com.com and you've got predictable revenue, there are people who will loan you money against your spend. But then you have to ask yourself, if it's predictable, why can't you clear market with VCs and yeah. like really great investors? Or maybe you just don't want to give up the equity. Which is possible, but that also doesn't make sense in a market where valuations are high and money is cheap yeah. because you would be getting great investors. So I just wonder, like, who are these products for necessarily? Mm -hmm. I think it's for people who can't clear market with the best investors yeah. at a good price. And it's also a little bit dangerous. Like, so I've seen all these other banks give people venture debt, and that's another category. Right. But venture debt is typically a million dollars added onto a $5 million round or $3 million added mm -hmm. onto a $10 million round. It's like a line of credit. So when you have $10 million in the bank, you can get a, a line of credit for $5 million or easily. $3 million yeah. from anybody easily. That's the sort of great paradox of life is when you don't need mm -hmm. the money, you can get these loans for nothing. Right. And when you need the money, you can't. Right. <laughs> yeah. The thing that frustrates me most about when founders are starting to run out of money is that they choose to they choose to not be transparent yeah. and that i think is one of the most important things that founders need Ooh. to realize that the more transparent you are with your team with your investors with other founder friends the more options you will likely yeah, have they're there to help yeah right. and well the quicker you'll get to resolution too yeah. people we've talked about this a bunch i think a it is scary to fail, and so people act out of fear. And one of the things people do when they're fearful is they kind of clench up and don't share information, and they make bad decisions. You really need to be sharing those the bad news. And if it if the company shuts down, it's not the end of the world. I mean, anybody sure. who's investing in companies knows that 60, 70, or 80 percent, depending on who you talk to, people expect that failure rate. Mm -hmm. So if people are expecting a 60 or 70 or 80 percent failure rate, you need not um, shelter them from that reality. They, they've bought into it. If they're an angel investor or a seed fund, they've bought into that premise. You don't need to be cute about it and protect them from what they know is how the name of the game. They know the rules of the game. Yeah. So let's wrap this one up by talking about 
taking care of yourself as a founder. Self-care. Yeah, mm-hmm. self-care. Aww. Self-care. Sam, what are some self-care? <laughs> Suck it up. Yeah. We're talking about, you know, the health of the company, but got to talk about the health of the founders Absolutely. Too. Yeah. It's important. Candles, um, warm bath. Yeah, and I know one of Jason's favorites is meditation. Meditation. Yeah, so many people one, think yes. that uh, meditation is cheesy at first, but don't knock it till you try it. Yeah. Um, try calm. You know, um, I know that I would probably recommend to meditate, at least start meditating maybe once a day. Yeah, um, sure. Even not? five, ten, ten minutes. minutes, that yeah. helps. Um, and then, you know, taking time off. A lot of founders don't do that. They think, oh, well, I just have to work through the weekend to get this product done. But in the long term, it does not pay off. You end up burnt, yeah. burnt out. Um there's I mean, a, there's a time for hard work. Like if your yeah. company is in that six week window and you think, you know what, if we come in every weekend and we sell or, you know, we do this extra work, it could save the company, do it. Mm-hmm. But you don't want to be burning it so hard that, yeah, you just break your brain. I've seen people kind of break their brains and they're just not <laughs> functional yeah. after the 12th hour a day. Um, optimizing your health is super important, right? Yeah. Yeah, Making absolutely. sure and you're then, um, eating healthy, Yeah, and, then, and also don't forget, you know, when you find yourself, you know, maybe lacking motivation um, or just, you know, having trouble getting, you know, getting into it every day, don't forget why you started the business in the first place. Um, you know, there, if you're, if you're losing steam, try to get back to those initial motivations. Um, and if you do feel like you've strayed too far away from those motivations and, you know, you don't, you just don't want to do it anymore, don't be afraid to step away. Uh, like you said, you know, investors will understand it happens all the time. Everything's going to be okay. Um, just don't wait till it's too late. Shut down properly. Yeah. I mean, if there's any message here, it's like if you've got six weeks of runway or less, mm-hmm. and you can try to save the company, but you certainly want to wrap it up properly yeah. um, and not have people, you know, suddenly come in and there's no money and you miss payroll because you could actually be liable for taxes and mm-hmm. other things, and it, it it can be gnarly. Um, yeah, and definitely take care of yourself. I mean, eating healthy, exercising, sleeping, like you can put in 12 hours a day and still sleep and, you know, uh, work out yeah. and eat properly. Yeah. Right. So it's don't don't uh, go crazy, you know. Yep. It's also right. it's also best for the company what to keep yourself healthy. Yeah. There are times to burn the midnight oil. There are times when you're in a competitive situation. There are times when you're trying to hit targets and you want to double down or triple down, um, but not to the point of breaking people. That's that's not the goal. You don't want to have people break because if people break, there's so many options in a market like this for people for people to work different places. I don't think you want to break people. It's just changed here in America. It used to be like 996 used to be pretty standard here 10 years ago, mm-hmm. you know, P- VCs were would come to offices at six o'clock for meetings. That was like the VC trick. Like, okay, I'll come to your office at five or six. I'll meet you at six. There? Well, they wanted to see how many people, were, how many yeah. cars were in the parking lot. It was the how many cars in the parking lot test. I like that. Now with millennials and <laughs> whatever, like people want to have balanced lives in America. Yeah. We're sort of turning into now. Europe. Those are usually the people that just got in at ten or eleven. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's a the world has changed in America. I, you know, you, mm-hmm. you can sit and fight it. I mean, the Zuckerberg used to do something called like a lockdown where he would lock down the campus. They literally called it a lockdown. And he'd be wow. like, we're locked down for the next 45 days. We're doing a sprint. We have to get this new product out. We have to kill Snapchat. Like every, I expect everybody to be here on Saturdays, half day Sunday, you know, see your kids on Sunday afternoon. That's it. You know, we're going to be locked down. Uh, and he would be there too. I think that that 
style of work in Silicon Valley still exists, it is not the default anymore. So you have to know if you're building a culture, what you're building. Mm -hmm. I have in my companies, I'm designing them right now around not burning people out. They may grow slower, but I think I can't force people to work at a level that is like we used to. It just doesn't work <laughs> anymore. Yeah. I tried. You can't. I mean, I literally architected inside.com around the concept of not having full-time employees. So I just said, I don't want any of the writers to be full-time. They can be one-third time. They can do one newsletter. And people are like, I can do two. I can do three. And we're just like, we're going to pay you $20,000 a year to do one newsletter. That takes three hours a day. And they're like, well, I want to work nine hours a day. I'll do three, like a full-time job and pay me 60000 which is what writers get paid, 50, 60, 70000 And I was like, nope, nobody can do more than one. So I actually throttled it because I just don't want to deal with the burnout culture anymore. I don't want people to hate me for pushing people too hard. And at launch, it's the same thing. Like Nobody was here on the weekend. Nobody's here after 7 o'clock. I mean, the only time we work weekends is when we have some major event, Angel Summit Launch Festival, sure. something like that. So it's... If you're young, you might be able to get away with it, you know, but you might also burn people out and maybe just move to China where it's, a, <laughs> where it's government mandated. And in France, you, I think you can't work past 35 hours. So I think in France, they capped it at 35 hours. So like if you, you can't have people come, forget about whether you're paying people or not. I don't think you're allowed to go past 35 hours was the rule. It's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, this has been amazing. If you would like to, uh, thank you for your time. Uh, if you would like to wa watch the whole series, go to thisweekinstartups.com slash scale. Thisweekinstartups.com slash scale. This was the sixth episode on the low importance of low burn culture. Uh, episode one, funding. Two, comms. Episode three, business model. Episode four, team. Episode five, sales. And we'll be doing seven, eight, nine, and ten shortly. We'll see you all. Thanks, uh, Sam August and Jason DeMont. We'll see you all next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>